Are you ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, and I'm so excited to share this show with you today. If you are a first time listener, this is the place where we educate, empower, entertain you, and inspire you. And I promise you, I deliver, my guest delivers on all of those things today. Please make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe. You can find me anywhere at Jody Harrison Bauer and also check us out on YouTube at Jody Harrison Bauer, all social media platforms, Jody Harrison Bauer. And you can find me on Apple, any place you find your streaming podcasts, I'm there. So I am just excited to share all the knowledge and fun and the journey of this guest. My guest today is Stephen Sashin. He is the founder of Zero Shoes. Stephen Sashin is a serial entrepreneur who has never had a job, a former professional stand-up comic and award-winning screenwriter and a competitive sprinter, one of the fastest men over 60 in the country, maybe the fastest 55 and over Jew in the world. He and his wife, Lena Phoenix, co-founded the footwear company Zero Shoes, creating a movement movement, which has helped hundreds of thousands of people live life feet first with happy, healthy, strong feet and addictively comfortable footwear. Stephen and Lena also appeared on Shark Tank, and we'll be talking about that, where they turned down a $400,000 offer from Kevin O'Leary. And welcome to the show, Stephen Session. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. Um, I was about to say it's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to say I'm expecting that it's going to be a pleasure to have been here. (laughs) Yes, of course. I think all of the conversations that we've had, not that we've had so many, but the ones that we've had have been very entertaining to me. And now that I know that you started your career, quote unquote, career in comedy as a stand up Uh, comedian. Oh, my goodness. Like, that's why you're so entertaining. um, I would say it's because when I was a kid, they hadn't invented Ritalin yet. Mm, mm. I think about that sometimes too. I do wonder if I have ADD. They say there's adult ADD, but are we too old for it at this point? No, it's never, it's, you're never too old to have ADD. But the other thing is my parents were both really funny. So that helped as well. Um, My mom, in fact, this is going to sound horrible, but it's actually got an upside. My mom has Alzheimer's and dementia and as her personality was disappearing, it was fascinating watching that the only thing she could do was at least attempts at telling jokes. Like every response was trying to be funny in some way. It's like, oh, that's where I got it. Oh, very interesting. I think I'm funny, but nobody else does. So, um, <laughs> but I do make my daughters laugh sometimes. People do laugh. It's not at me, but I mean, I do come up with some. As long weird as they're things. laughing near you, that's exactly, all. Exactly, exactly. So let's start from the beginning. You grew up in Maryland, right? Yes, yeah, stalker. Yes, I, I did stalk. I went, did a deep, deep dive on you. Of course I did. <laughs> um, and then you went to Duke. I was. I was very impressed by that beautiful Uh, place to go to school. So you're obviously very smart, Um, but you were kind of bored there, right? uh, Yeah, a lot. Actually, you know what? It's not totally true. There was one 
class that I got into somehow like two years before I was allowed to get into it, which was cognitive psychology. It was the psychology of language. And my teacher, Dr. Ruth Day, um, she basically introduced me to this idea that the way my brain works, the way I think was an actual academic pursuit, which is cognitive psychology. Oh. I had never been more excited in my entire life to just find things to do that were just interesting and exciting to me. And so um, uh, at the end of this class, when she said um, my classmates were very upset with me and I said, what? She goes, well, I'll say something to you. It gets you really excited. You say things back to me. It gets me really excited. They don't even know what we're talking about. And so, and you're not even supposed to be in the class. You're two years younger than them. I said, well, what do I do? She goes, well, independent study, of course. So I spent the next few years doing research with her, which was tremendously fun. But otherwise, yeah, I was pretty bored. <laughs> so let's talk about quickly, because you've had a very long, again, quote unquote, career. You said you've never really had a job, a career. You've gone from a lot of different things that led you to this amazing success that you're having right now. I do believe that things happen for a reason that might be too corny for you. That might not be deep enough for you. But I do believe <laughs> that all of the experiences that we have in life lead us ultimately to what brings us the most fulfillment, success, love, joy, and so on. Mm, I like the sound of that. Well, um, yeah, I've never applied for a job. I've never had a resume. I keep threatening to do it just for fun and then <laughs> give all the wrong answers. I think that'd be a blast. Um, but no, I've been lucky enough that anything that interested me, I found a way to make a living doing it. Yeah. So the So you were a comedian for about 10 years. And then what happened there? I know you opened up for lots of very famous people, including Jay Leno, but that was a very cool gig. And why did you stop? Uh, there were a couple things. One, the comedy boom was sort of busting a little bit by 1991, 92. And I, in when did I do this? Maybe the mid eighties, late eighties. Um, I can't remember time very well. I was also kind of bored doing standup, not doing standup per se, but you know, you only work for about an hour a night and or a couple hours a night on the weekend. And I was looking for something else to do. And I met a guy who was applying to Columbia University Film School. And I went, oh, that could be a good one for me. So I applied for some strange reason. They let me in and I won some awards for screenwriting. And I ended up inventing what became the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. Right. So, Can you expand on that? I found that really, really interesting. Well, screenplays have a very arcane and ridiculous format that is very complicated to do. And uh, there were some programs that you would write with some word processor and a bunch of extra commands, and then you'd put it through this post-processing thing to get it into the right format. And uh, it was just too hard for my brain. And I mapped out what you would do if you were typing on a typewriter. And then I saw some patterns and I got rid of all those extra steps and came up with, um, this is going to be for the total geeks in the audience, a rules-based, object-oriented, context-sensitive database that act and look like a word processor. Now, to be clear. Wow. And what year was this? Uh, 1992. Okay. Now, to be clear, I can't write a line of code. Um, so, or wait, was it 92? Uh, somewhere around there. Yeah. Ooh, no, actually, I came up with the idea in 89. And uh, it took three years to make it happen. So I can't write a line of code. But but I was, again, getting a degree in screenwriting at this time and doing comedy. So I show up at a comedy club with a laptop because I'm writing in the, while I'm in the green room. Right. And I see a guy walk in with a PC Magazine t-shirt. And I said, what are you doing with the PC Magazine t-shirt? As he says to me, what are you doing with a laptop in a comedy club? Right. That's, that's very odd in like the early yeah. 90s. Yeah. 
And so it was actually the late eighties. And so I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, Oh, I actually have a beta version of a program that will let me write the code that you need. And so we started working on this thing. It took us three years to make it. And and my favorite story is after we launched it, I got a call from a script typist, which was an actual career in the studios. And she said, um, it was on a Monday. She said, I worked on 10 scripts this weekend. I said, okay. She goes, yeah, normally that would take me about a month. I said, oh, well, so what are you going to do now? She goes, well, I'm going to take a vacation without telling my bosses. Are you kidding me? Wow. Wow. um, basic, and essentially what I came up with is a way of understanding that each script element, the character's name, what they say, the action you see on the screen, related to the other elements in a particular way and to the page in a particular way. And I invented a way of having all the complex and ridiculous formatting and pagination and everything else happen totally automatically. What you see is what you get as you're writing with no extra keystrokes. In fact, you get rid of keystrokes. It's the fastest, easiest way to get a story out of your head onto a perfectly formatted page. And the importance there is when you submit a script to Hollywood, the first thing they do is look at the first page and see if it's in the right format. And if it's not, they assume you don't know what you're doing and they throw it away. Incredible. So how did you go from what, how long were you doing this job and (laughs) what led you to stop doing that? Um, Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I was actively running that company for 10 years. And what got me out was a combination of two, a couple of things. Uh, one, I got kind of bored. Two, seems to be a theme. I never <laughs> thought of that till now. Two. I'm um, the same. I am the same way. <laughs> I get very bored. And I have said to every, I've been married twice to each husband, you better keep me on my toes because I get bored really quickly. And at about the 10 year mark with my first husband, I said that and I'm like, yeah. Wait, please tell me, please tell me you didn't just say, hi, uh, good morning. I'm bored. I'm out of here. Yeah. Well, I did almost. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm jerk, really lucky. But... Um, every day I'm, I marvel at things that come out of my wife's mouth. She says she's a brilliant woman and it's, you know, it's we're we got our 20th anniversary coming up and then, but we've been together for like four and a half years before that. We knew each other for a few years before that. So. I love your wife. I've I've stalked her as well. I need to meet her. I wish I had asked her to come on the show too. Not that I don't love you, but she sounds like a very cool <laughs> oh, woman. No, no she's, she's definitely the winner in the family. And so, um, uh, so A, the boredom thing. B, um, there were some guys who wanted to buy the company from me. And in the process of doing that, one was a guy who had been a consultant for me for quite a long time. And so they wanted to take over day-to-day operations and take it off my hands. And while we we're they were doing that and we were negotiating, uh, I figured out that one of their partners was embezzling. And so uh, that was entertaining. And um, and it was re- really fun, actually. I'll that's, give you that that's short very, version. That's got to be an awful feeling. Uh, more for them than for me. Yeah. What happened for me was the guy said, well, I wanted to check and see if your mailing list was any good. So I started making phone calls and you got a horrible list. I went, when did you make those calls? And he told me. I said, <laughs> and how many did you make? And he told me. I said, and we're using our office phone? He said, yeah. I said, well, that's an internet-based phone. So I have the records of every call that goes in or out. And A... The number of calls you said you made in the time that you said you made them would have meant that you had to be making a call every four seconds. And I'm looking at the outbound call record and there are no calls on the 
five days before or the five days after that you mentioned. And then he starts screaming at me. Who do you think you are? And I said, oh, you know what? Righteous indignation is a sign of guilt. Absolutely. And so then his partners went, "Eh, we'll get back to you. And then they called and said, oh, yeah, yeah. Now, but there was actually another thing that got me out. One of my competitors, I mean, I really owned the industry. And one of my competitors did something that I would have never thought of in a million years because I'm an individual sport athlete. I was a gymnast as a kid. I'm a sprinter now. And so- in the back of my head, the way everything works is best thing or best man wins. Mm-hmm. And I would never think to do something underhanded to keep myself alive when it looks like you know someone is suffocating me. Well, what these guys did is they went to the biggest retailer and said, how much margin do we need to give you so that you never sell Sashin's program? Mm-hmm. And they had an answer. And so it shut me out of the market for a while. So put it all together. That got me out. And then um, I spent the next 10 years um, sort of puttering around and figuring things out about what I wanted to do. Actually, wait, it's the next 10 years? I can't do that. No, I'm going to remind you of what happened after that. Okay, what happened after that? Because I stalked you. Well, you were dating your wife. She finally Uh, decided to say yes to you. And yeah, that sounded like a crazy thing. And I remember hearing her say something about that she had to work on herself before she got into a relationship with you and you had to work on your humility. Well, I didn't think about it. I think you're being very humble. Well, I don't don't remember having to work on anything per se, (laughs) um, but what it really was, oh boy, how to say it. Like, I'll give you a weird one. I for a while was seeing clients doing, let's say, psychological work, because what the hell? Mm -hmm. And I was really good at that. And so when we became a couple, you know, when she was having some issue, I would pull out my little bag of tricks and she would say, shut up. It's like, what? She goes, I don't need your help. And what I realized was that my thought that she needed my help was A, the height of arrogance, Mm. and in no way helpful. And so um, I had to get over the idea that she was in any way broken. Not that I thought that to begin with, but of course. she was highlighting that. And so um, it was things like that. And, but the, but the um, yeah, I mean, I just spent a lot of years when we were friends trying to get her on board with the idea that we'd be a great couple. And she had no interest in that. And so I'm dating other people thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm dating the wrong one, but she right. has no interest in me. So away we go. Exactly. So you got into the mortgage business with her. Right? Uh, yeah. So we became a couple. And so, yeah. All right. So can I do the math? No, I can't. So in roughly 2000, we met someone who had been doing um, a very clever form of real estate investing. And I had a bunch of cash floating around. So we became a partner of his and we were partners. Actually, I'll give you the better story. When Lena moved in with me, uh, she said, okay, so I've kind of looked around and I don't think I should get a job because if I did, I probably wouldn't have enough energy for our relationship. But instead, you should just pay me some money and I should manage everything you're doing. Perfect well, for you. Yeah. Well, you would think. Uh, it took me two weeks to like it breathe again because I was just so put off by this idea. And it took me two weeks to realize why that was so upsetting for me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I had the idea in the back of my head, so far back, I'd never articulated, had no clue that it was there, mm-hmm. that whomever I was going to be with, we'd kind of 
be on equal footing financially and just sort of share things. Um, and then I realized, well, that's an interesting idea. Um, and then I realized that my parents had something akin to what Lena was describing, which is my dad earned most of the money and my mom managed a bunch of those things. Right. But there was always just a lot of tension about finances, um, mm-hmm. not, be, not because of her, but in part because my dad spent more money than he had. I think mm-hmm. both of them did actually. And But more, I realized, you know, it kind of worked for them, even though I thought it was a horrible idea the way they did it, but they well, never complained other than the complaining. Well, I think also we're close to the same age or not the same age. I'm 62. I know that you're somewhere around there. Yeah. And, you know, I think just a side note, that generation was different with money. Correct. They they were born in the 30s. Nobody told them about money management. You know, right. my dad was in sales. It was either feast or famine. So we were your typical middle class. My mom used to say we were upper middle class, whatever that is. When we were middle class and we lived in a nice house and went to good schools and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, um, and I think what happens is when you have children who are born in the 60s, we're sort of raised by houseplants that just love us and make sure that we have food and shelter and love and don't really teach us anything else. Um, And we we (laughs) look at them by example and say, okay, well, what am I going to do differently? Right. So I I think, you know, my house was the same way. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and, you know, managed the finances and, you know, my father spent too much money. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so where it ended when I, when I realized there was really an infinite number of way to do money with relationships, Mm -hmm. um, I did the math and I walked into the bedroom where Elena was reading a book and I said, um, so I think you're right. And I think you asked for half as much money as you should be getting. And uh, that's how it began. Now, the irony is that for the last 13 and a half years, we have had that life that I described. We both get the same salary. We're sharing our stuff. I mean, it's, and that was not intentional. I didn't realize that till just a couple of years ago. So, um, so no, she's, she's, she's a good one. I lucked out. I hit the wife lottery. I love that. That's so sweet to say that. So when you did the mortgage business um, together, that was just a, was that like a five-year stint of like making some really good money because your goal was to retire at 35. Yeah. I had to do from it. From what, whatever you were doing. It took me till 38. Um, okay, so bad. the real estate stuff, uh, we did that from basically 2000 to 2009. In 2006, when our last friend said, I'm getting into real estate, we called our partner and said, this is like 1999 all over again when everyone was a day trader. So we got to get out. And he said, funny you mentioned that. I can't find any good deals for us because people have figured out what we're doing, but they don't know how to price them properly. So it's all too expensive. So we started getting out of that. We started unwinding from that in 2006 and it took us till 2009. And so we weren't making a lot of money. It's just that we were making enough money that we didn't have to work for a living. Well, right. And I think that is sort of what... Well, everybody has different dreams and and ideas of the way they want to live. But I think in reading about you is that you just really wanted to have an easy, simple life, not worry about money. But like your goal wasn't to work really, really hard to make a lot of money. That wasn't a goal of yours. No, my goal was to not have to work. That's really right. Right. So you mentioned, we mentioned the beginning that you are, you were, or you are an all-American gymnast. And you are, was back in college. And so you've always been involved in athletics and now you hold a master's. (laughs) So there's a whole um, master's athletic scene for people 35 Mm -hmm. and older. I found out about this 
15 years ago when I was 45. And um, so I'm a master's all-American sprinter. So for men over 60, I'm like the 15th fastest guy in the country. It's impressive. Yeah. It's genetics. We could do a whole show about that because, you know, I didn't start competing in fitness shows until I was 47 and I became a two-time world bikini champion at 49. Right. And I did hear you say something about, um, or I think Lena was referring to a book that Robert from Shark Tank, we'll get into that, was talking about the show is, let me see, I have it written down, that it's a television show about business. Right. And when I think about fitness shows, I always say it's a beauty pageant for fit women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, um, you know, I, I understand all of that, but that's still incredibly impressive. And it talks about your competitive personality oh. and how you mentioned earlier already that, you know, being competitive with yourself, my, myself included, being you know, competing for 10 years over the age of 47, you realize how to focus, even though sometimes we're like, oh, where's that butterfly? Yeah. Uh, where's the shiny object? Let me go there. But when you are focused on an idea, like the business we're going to talk about, um, that you are hyper-focused, you are laser-focused, yeah. and nobody else is going to get in front of you. That's true. Squirrel, I yeah. it's, it's a little different because I don't do continual focus. My thing is I bounce very, very quickly from thing to thing. And um, there's certain concessions that I have to make because of that. It's not the concessions in the right word. There's certain things that I realize that I need to do when I need to get certain kinds of things done. So certain kinds of creative work, I have to do them essentially with an audience. I know that sounds weird, but I have to bring in other people and think out loud with them because on my own, I do get too distracted or it's just too difficult for me to do it that way. Yeah. So right. same way um, I have to, I, I like to collaborate and I don't really like to be doing, that's why I love to have guests on my show and because I get to chat with them and it's a collaboration of ideas yeah. and thoughts. And, and so well, I, and I, some, someone said something to me a while ago. Um, they were, they were a best-selling author. They'd written a number of best-selling nonfiction books. And she said, um, yeah, I wanted to learn about that thing, so I wrote a book about it. I went, wait, what? I thought you had to know about it to write the book. She goes, right. no, it's the other way around. And that was shocking to me that it's the, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's like that you have to get into it to get into it. You can't do it from afar. You can't do it in advance. It Actually, this is uh, reminds me of something early on, Lena said, um, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing when we started our current business. And I said, well, no one knows what we're doing. No one's ever done it before. Our job is not to know in advance. Our job is to figure out what fire started overnight, despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday, and then figure out how to learn or find someone who knows how to put out the fire. And she says, oh, well, I can do that. I said, yeah, of course you can. And that was sort of the end of that. So we've been putting out fires for, for, for almost 14 years. Well, you came up with, so you got back to, to sprinting. Yeah. And that's when you you were 45 years old, you get back to sprinting and you're wearing shoes that are causing you joint pain, all types of pain from your waist well, down. I well, I didn't know that it was the shoes. I just knew that right. I was injured. But wait, I do have to, I want to back up for the fun of it. Okay. Um, I said All-American Gymnast in the past, but uh, the other day I hadn't done done this in a number of years. Uh, I did a standing backflip on the ground. No and, way. Yeah. Yeah. I can show you the video. 
<laughs> so it's pretty I good. I can't too. even imagine. I just, I, wow. That's well, I, I had a, I had a couple of former Olympian friends of mine call me and go, what the holy crap, dude. So I'm now, uh, I'm semi, I'm half proud and half annoyed to say I'm now an inspiration to some people, which is really unpleasant that I've gotten to that age. But well, yeah, uh, is that that word inspiration? I mean, as much as we want to inspire people, like your whole story is very inspiring and motivating. But when I hear comments like, I hope I look like you when I'm 62 or you're so inspiring. And I've just, you know, I've welcomed it. You know, I'm at the age where I guess I'm inspiring. So it's better than not being inspiring, right? Uh, let's just say that the first time I was ever in anything <laughs> resembling therapy, when someone else was in a group, it was, it was actually a college course called group therapy, which is really just an excuse to get eight college seniors into therapy. And, um, someone said she had seen a show that I had been doing, uh, I was a street performer. She saw my show over the weekend and was like, really thought it was great. And I said, which one did you see The like two, like around two o'clock or four o'clock. And the therapist went, ho oh, oh, ho, don't answer that. And he turns to me and says, do you always have this much trouble with a compliment? And I went, well, oh yeah, crap. Oh. Yeah. So the inspiration is the same thing. Yeah, no, that's nice. It's, it was very sweet. Uh, but uh, so I do, uh, I, I do want to find out what is, what kind of competition I have for being the oldest guy to do a standing backflip on the ground. There's a 94 year old who did it into a pool. That doesn't count. So no, see. no this was like full on ground, like no yeah, trampoline, yeah. like nothing, yeah, no. no bouncy thing. No, no, no. Just stand flip. Yeah. What made you, oh, that? that's for another show. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into, let, that's crazy, but that is inspiring. So you should just welcome the compliment. Okay. All right. Thank so you. So you start running. Yes. Tell so us, tell was us getting, all about that. was getting injured for the next two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, literally, I don't think I had more than two weeks of non-injury time in a row. And one day after a couple of years of this, a friend of mine says, you might want to try running barefoot and see if you learn anything from doing that. And he handed me a copy of the book Born to Run, which Christopher McDougall wrote, which kind of kicked off the whole barefoot running movement in 2009, 2010. And that first barefoot run, now I'm a sprinter, okay? I run the 100 meters outdoors. I run the 60 meters indoors. I don't take turns around the track because I don't have a GPS watch and I would get lost if I tried. (laughs) So, uh, but, but that first barefoot run was so entrancing I just kept experimenting with my gait. Like, what if I land on my foot this way or that way? What if I run faster with the same cadence, the same number of steps per minute? Or if I run slower with the same cadence or pick up my cadence and don't run any faster or slow down my cadence and don't run. I mean, just like everything I think of. And there's a group of us, we're running on grass and on trails and on streets and you know every surface you can think of. And it was just fascinating. And at the end of this run, which I could have kept going, but we all decided as a group to stop. I turned to a woman who had a didn't have a GPS watch on. And I said, how far was that? She goes, that was a little over 5K. I was like, sorry, what? I had no idea. And I'd never done that before. And wow. anything close to that, I did not enjoy at all. But this was just a blast. Except I noticed I had a big blister on the ball of my left foot. And I was going to say, weren't your feet cut up? I mean, here you no, are on the road. No, it's just I had that one blister. Now, okay. many people I have discovered in the last 14 years would say, oh, see, this is ridiculous. I got a blister. doesn't work. End of story. I had a different thought. My thought was, huh, how come my right leg's fine? How come my right foot is fine? How come my left leg is the one that gets injured more often? That's the one that got the blister. That's interesting. And so the next barefoot run, which was a week later, a bunch of us got together. I thought, let me just give it 10 minutes. If I can't figure out how to run in a way that doesn't hurt, I'll stop. But if I can figure it out, then I'm probably not doing the thing 
that caused that blister in the first place. So I've got this gaping wound on the ball of my foot. And I, for the first nine minutes and 30 seconds, it was nothing but pain. Mm -hmm. And then, but, you know, I could see the end in sight. And then literally in one step, everything got easy, fast, light, effortless, just, it was a blast. Now, I didn't know at the time what had happened, uh, but what happened was I realized that I had been overstriding, reaching my foot out in front of my body, pointing my toes to land because sprinters are supposed to land on their toes. Okay. And I'm basically putting the brakes on. When you land with your foot in front of you, it's like putting the brakes on and then you need to reaccelerate. Mm -hmm. So those two things were causing abrasion. The gist, I'm not trying to tell people to run barefoot, but the gist is when you run with bad form when you're barefoot, it hurts. And when you when you run with good form, it feels great, feels natural. Right. So what this really opened your eyes to was that you can feel the road more, you can feel the ground more, you feel your body more. Right. So you know exactly. There's nothing to to help your foot move in a way that's not good for your joints or your feet. Well, well you similarly, you realize that shoes are getting in the way of doing what's natural. Exactly. Exactly. And so what happened after you realized, okay, well, if I change the way I'm running, if I adjust a few things, I'm not feeling the pain. Yeah. My injuries went away. I became a master's All-American sprinter. Um, so, I mean, in a nutshell. Congratulations. And crazy. thanks. Um, it, was, it became fun. I mean, I, I haven't had a real running injury in over 13 years now, which is, especially for a sprinter, highly unusual. Um, but it's from doing that, I would argue. And also, because when you run with proper form, you're using your muscles and ligaments and tendons properly. So for example, that overstriding thing, if you're running in a regular shoe and you land on your heel with your foot out in front of you, the first thing you have to do is kind of pull your foot towards you. Well, your glutes and your hamstrings are better at extending your foot behind you mm -hmm. than pulling towards you. So if you're not used to doing that correctly... Uh, you'll put extra strain on your glutes and hamstrings and hamstring pulls are very, very common for right. sprinters in particular, but people in general. So, uh, so I wanted that barefoot like experience as much as I could have it, but I got tired of arguing with people about whether it was legal to get into a restaurant in bare feet, by the way it is. Um, they can make, they can tell you they don't want you there, but they can't say it's illegal because that's not true. If they is don't have a policy. Is that just in Colorado or is that? Whole world. Well, not the whole world, the whole country, totally whole country. legal. Unless they have a policy, and then they just yeah. say it's a policy. Right. If you say if they say it's illegal, you say really according to who? They say well the health department. It's like nope, not true. Right. Uh, and there's a someone has compiled letters from the secretaries of state of every state where it says we have no law that says it's illegal to go into an establishment in bare feet. Interesting. So um, there is there is a weird thing, not quite a law, but airlines when you buy a ticket. For a plane, you're actually buying, you're agreeing to sign a contract that you will abide by their rules. And one of their rules is no bare feet on an airplane. I didn't when, know that. Yeah. Now, when some people investigated this, that was added in the 60s when they didn't want a bunch of hippies on an airplane. Oh, the hippies. They've never revisited <laughs> that since. So, wow. Anyway, um, so I wanted that barefoot-like experience. My wife didn't want me to walk into our house with white carpeting and get my dirty feet on them. Yes. And so I made a pair of sandals based on a 10,000-year-old design idea. And uh, people kept asking me to make pairs for them. And I made like, I don't know, 50 or 60 pairs. And uh, just getting just enough money to be able to buy enough 
materials to make the next batch. Can you describe it? What what you were creating for your yeah. fee, and then for it the people that could not be simpler. Footwear is really just two two and a half things: one, something to protect your foot; two, something to hold that protection on your foot. And the half is if you live somewhere where you need some insulation because it's cold, some insulation because it's cold. That's it. If you look at the history of footwear, um, well, everyone knows like Roman sandals, for example. But you find there was an archaeological dig in Oregon where they found a sandal that they've dated about 10,000 years old. And it looks a lot like what we do. It's something to protect your foot, something to hold it on your foot. That's really it. That's all you need. I mean, and people can argue about this, but I think here's my favorite thing. I'll be walking around Colorado, either in a pair of sandals or, or bare feet, and I'll see a kid like a six to seven-year-old kid, that's my sweet spot for this one, where they're likely to say, mommy, that man's not wearing shoes. And then uh, if the parents don't shoo him away instantly, pun intended, (laughs) um, they'll say something like, well, you can ask him about that. And he'll say, how come you're not wearing shoes? And I go, well, when you go, have you ever been to the beach? And they go, yeah. I go, do you wear shoes at the beach? No. Well, just pretend we're at the beach. So we've all had experiences where there's places where we don't wear shoes. When you're a kid, you take up, you run around outside, you kick off your shoes, you play. Everybody in the wants to be barefoot. I mean, everybody. And I'm dealing with something right now because I have arthritis in my big toe, and my podiatrist mm. is telling me to Don't wear. Do Don't do it. I, we'll uh, talk about it later. Right. I, I I love. I'm barefoot right now. I love being barefoot. How does and it feel when you're walking barefoot, given your seeming arthritis? It hurts. It hurts. It hurts all the time. And I wear heels like this high. Well, then don't do that. Get out of the yeah, heels. Yeah, I know. I the know. Bare, so the, and I'm not suggesting this will be a cure, but one of the things that can be helpful, could be helpful, is um, motion and circulation. So you don't want to push it to the point that it hurts, but you want to use your feet as much as you can painlessly to get motion and circulation in there and see what happens. Usually a shot of tequila helps. There you go. But, Start there. Um, there you go. Yeah, right. No, but so you create these these shoes for yourself, for your friends. Yeah. And what is the feeling? What's the feedback from this? This is just oh, everybody, you're like your I, local running group, right? Yeah. And and just random human beings. At one point, Lena and I are walking down uh in downtown Boulder, which has a pedestrian mall, an outdoor pedestrian mall. And a pack of teenage girls run up to us and go, Oh my God, those are sick. Where do you get those? And so we so said, cool. huh? Uh, we could be billionaires. So um, what happened is that the guy who was running the local barefoot running group said to me, I have a contract to write a book about barefoot running. And if you treated this little sandal making hobby of yours, like a business and not a website, I'd put you in the book. Well, I've been an internet marketer since 1992, started with my software company. And so I rush home and I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife who assures me I'm a complete idiot and it's a waste of time, effort, and money and just another you know, ADD distraction. Just another idea that you have. Yeah, exactly. One of way too many. Mm-hmm. And so she said, just do not do this. And I said, okay, okay, I won't. And then she went to bed and I built a website. So um, she kind of growled at me the next morning. And uh, <laughs> I said, we, we had been starting a search engine marketing business at that time. Right. Um, this is after the real estate thing was falling apart. And mm-hmm. so we needed to do something. And since I've been an internet marketer for a long time, that's what that did. And I said, it'll just be a good case study because you know, in like three months, I'll own all the keywords that I care about and it'll maybe make us a car payment. It only took me three weeks. And within the within the next three weeks after that, we realized this was going to be our full-time gig. And Lena walked into the kitchen one day and with the appropriate hand gesture says, I'm all in. 
And then with that's how it all began, just really without much thinking or preparation or anything. We just kind of jumped in. And your sales the first year were like a hundred thousand, right? Were you like at 120,000? So surprised that this was taking off. Uh, no, I th- I knew there was an audience out there and I knew how to reach them and offer them something of value. And so I wasn't really surprised. I was surprised that things didn't go faster for us. Really? Um, yeah. I'm never, su- yeah, that's pretty much a continuous thing. People keep saying to us, you can't keep growing 50% year after year after year. I go, I know it should be much faster. Right. Right. So you were selling like DIY kits to yeah, people we were- who would. Yeah, we we were buying big sheets of rubber, cutting them into smaller sheets of rubber, going to every Home Depot within 50 miles to buy this cord that we found that worked really well, cutting that up into smaller pieces of cord and selling those things with some instructions on how to make a sandal based on a 10,000-year-old design idea. Or more fun, you could just do whatever you wanted because, again, something to to protect your foot, something to hold it on your foot. You get really creative. People came up with all these really fun ways of making new sandals for the first time in 5,000 years. And the feedback was great. People all over. I remember like, hearing that your first customer was like some man from Minnesota or something like that. Right? Yeah, it was the end of November. <laughs> and the first customer was a guy in Minnesota where we knew there was two feet of snow on the ground. It was like, right, right. something's going on here. And what we were hearing from people is uh, these things just changed my life. Mm-hmm. My feet and ankles and my hips and my knees and my back feel better than ever. And I never thought I'd be able to do X ever or X again. And we went, oh, wow, we're really onto something. And it wasn't too surprising because it was like my barefoot running experience mm-hmm. is that when you let your body do what it's made to do, that can be beneficial. When you get in the way, it's problematic. So I like to say the principles of natural movement, which is what we're all about, are really simple. Stronger is better than weaker. Letting your joints and bones move is better than getting them immobilized. Feeling things is better than being numb. And proper alignment is better than getting in the way of that. And if you add some elevation to your heel, that gets in the way of proper posture. If your shoe is stiff, that gets in the way of letting your bones and joints move and makes them weaker. And if you have a bunch of cushioning between you and the ground, you can't feel the ground, which means your brain can't tell what you're stepping on or in. And paradoxically, it makes you land harder to try to get some feedback. And if you have a shoe that's now got a bunch of foam that's unstable, landing harder makes you unstable. That leads, I mean, just everything. Oh, about totally. It. I mean, it's, it really is about joint alignment at the end of the day. It's I mean, about, you have to have the freedom in your toes and everything that you, I am not a pro. I do not, yeah. I mean, I do not run at all. Yeah. I've never run. I don't run. No bonus um, It's okay. <laughs> sorry. And, but it's, it's being in the fitness industry for 33 years and working out myself for 40 joint alignment is the number one thing that Absolutely. I would focus on. You know, so that in that running, when you were describing how you're running, why is one side getting injured and the other side isn't, oh, let me adjust some things. And you were smart enough to think about that. Most people I don't think would be able to figure it out. But this no, was- no, I disagree. You, you know, basically, if you get the feedback and it's not too intense, mm-hmm. your brain is going to try to figure out a way to get around adjust. what you're doing. Like if you get any sort of injury, you don't heal perfectly. You heal just enough because your brain is going to find some compensation to allow you to function. In this case, though, you're not finding a compensation. You're you're not decompensating. You're uncompensating because you're 
getting that feedback to let you move more naturally instead of doing wearing a big shoe with a big thick sole that you know and a bunch of foam and a pointy toe box to squeeze your toes together it's going it's waking you up to the way you did it when you were a kid like yeah. if you watch little kids like 4 years old 5 years old running if they haven't spent a bunch of time in shoes perfect form yes. perfect form and there's no reason you can't do that now and we like to joke you can spot a barefoot runner from about 50 yards away cuz they have this weird look on their face called um, smiling and, <laughs> and the same way kids do just like yes. kids. Yes. Yes. So you, you create this shoe. It's first called one name. What was the first name? Well, th- when I built the website, I realized I needed a name for it. And um, I thought, well, it's kind of like being barefoot, which is kind of like not shoes. So I came up with invisible shoes mm-hmm. and uh, I liked it. Although someone owned invisible shoes, plural.com. So I had invisible shoe.com, mm. which is a bit of a compromise. Um, but then I met a guy who's a very successful marketing executive who the first thing he said to me is, I can see them. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, change okay. it. I can see them. So you came up with zero shoes. Zero with an X. Zero we, with an X have, because it would be easy to search. Well, n- no, I came up with it because... We hired what was for us a, an expense at that time. An ex, actually, it still would be expensive, an expensive marketing team. And they came up with a bunch of names that were horrible. Um, but one or two of them started with an X. And I just liked that idea. Mm-hmm. And one day after track practice, I'm sitting in my car. And I went, I like the X thing. What can I do with that? And I went, oh, zero with an X. That'll be, that's something we can own. I heard you tell the story about when you you started building the company and making shoes out of overseas and then everything got messed up. You were still very small. They kind of took advantage of you. And then they said, we don't want you as a customer anymore. And then you were like, well, what are we going to do? Right. What are we going to do? Um, it's, you were still making money, but you were like, wait a minute, these are the people making our, our shoes for us right now. And did you have a lot of styles at the time or were they very no, limited? No, no. This is when we were, the only thing we had was our do it yourself kit. But okay. instead of buying just a big flat sheet of rubber, we were making custom, uh, molded soles that were basically already foot shaped to begin with and had some contour to them and had a tread that we wanted. And we we made the rubber compound itself more durable so they would last longer. Uh, and the companies that make outsoles for shoes, they don't really have much quality control because they don't care. Because that outsole, that rubber outsole is just getting glued onto something else, which is getting glued onto another thing, which is getting glued onto another thing. And it just didn't matter. But when your entire product is just a contoured piece of rubber, everything matters. And they had no interest. And, you know, we were naive. We thought if we just complained, they would fix it. But um, we were a tiny, tiny, tiny little gnat on the foot of a very, very large elephant. And they basically told us to take a hike and they kicked us out of that factory and every other factory in that country. Wow. So uh, we were a little panicked at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you uh, had, you mentioned a few times when I've read all these things about you um, and you mentioned, I got lucky. I got lucky. Oh yeah. I got but, lucky. Yeah. And then, so this was a story of, and then you got lucky. Yeah. You met somebody in New York who helped? Yeah, we happened to see an industry magazine that was featuring uh, a guy in New York who was a manufacturing agent. And I contacted them. And for reasons that were to this are to this day a bit of a mystery, they decided to take us on as a client. 
And um, I found out later they vetted us. They interviewed a bunch of people who knew us who all said really wonderful things about us, which was also surprising because we were a tiny little company selling a do-it-yourself sandal kit. Yeah. And um, so they found new factories for us. They basically, we worked with them for about eight years and um, that was very helpful. I will throw them under the bus a bit just for the fun of it. Okay. Um, at one point when we were having some arguments about what they were doing for us, one of the principals in the company said, look, it's our job to give you quality product at a reasonable price in a good time frame." And I said, God, any one of those would be awesome. Ooh, got it. Got it. <laughs> so you, you end up working with them and then somebody suggests that you go on Shark Tank. This is 2012. You start the business yeah. in tw- 2009. You're yeah. like, what's Shark Tank? You go on there and I thought you were great. I thought you guys were amazing. I've been watching the show forever and uh, of course went and watched it again the other day, but you know, it was, it was a perfect pitch, but explain to everybody what happened during your pitch to the Sharks. Uh, well, first of all, Barbara hated me from the moment I walked out. She said, she, did. <laughs> she said, I looked like her ex-husband. Yes. I was maybe a little shorter. She asked if I smoked a pipe or cigar. <laughs> I don't remember which. Um, so she hated me. And then she started attacking Lena. Like, wh- why are you married to this man? What is wrong with you? And Lena's like, uh, he's not yeah. always like this. So, which was not the appropriate answer, but right, right, right. Um, cause I don't, but here's the problem. Um, this is going to sound funny, but this goes back to our, our ADD story. I think really fast and I was, uh, and that can be overwhelming for people. Um, especially if they're asking me questions and I have answers practically before they get to the question mark. So Barbara really did not like that. I get it. Um, so there's that. Uh, Damon and Robert thought we were asking for too much money. It was just too much rich for their blood. They said, Mark, we had an interesting thing. Mark Cuban turned out he was a customer of my software company. And once he realized that he was like, oh, so, and he thought that what we were doing was just a bubble and it was going to burst any second now. And then Kevin made us an offer. We were offering uh, 8% of the company. And he said, I'll buy your company. I'll invest in your company for 50%. It's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. So we turned down a $400,000 offer. And um, it was fascinating the number of people who thought we were insane because we knew what the valuation was and it was not that. But I understand $400,000 is a lot of money. And so- um, I'm sure you don't have any regrets for not taking that that offer. No, of course not. Because what happened afterwards? Well, last year we did just shy of $50 million. That's incredible. Congratulations. <laughs> that is, um, well, in your I wildest said, dreams, did you ever think? Uh, well, f- well, first of all, I'd like to say it's a start. We're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the answer to your question, yes and no. I had no doubt that the potential for what we're doing is very large because we now make shoes, boots, and sandals for see, pretty much I every see use. behind you, like all the beautiful shoes. Yeah, we have 39 different styles of casual and performance footwear. And uh, but again, the more important thing is not the number of styles. The important thing is the number of people whose lives are changed by footwear that lets your feet do what's natural and therefore the rest of your body as well. And so we there's an, one of our an investor who came in a few years ago said to me, Do you think this could be a billion dollar company in 10 years? I said, Oh no, no, seven. 
And so, oh, um, so, so on that, uh, from that perspective, uh, my vision for this is l- appropriately large. But the question, did we imagine this? No. We literally thought once we got to a million, somebody would buy it. Once we got to three, somebody would buy it. Once we got to five, somebody would buy it. I mean, all along the way, we just kept assuming somebody was going to just hand us a giant wad of money and ask us to go take a hike and pat us on the head. But um, they just kept saying, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. We don't believe you. And until we've gotten to this point, in fact, at the end of 2021, a number of people who we had talked to about potentially investing in our company who didn't believe what we were saying, um, I sent them all, there's about a dozen people. I sent them an email with the subject line. Is it too rude to say I told you so? Is that the <laughs> and, best feeling as I told you so? It was pretty fun. Uh, they were very gracious about it. They said, wow, we are very wrong. Let's talk. So, because they see there's still, now that we've proven that this is not just some flash in the pan thing, that we like to say that we're a health and wellness company disguised as a lifestyle footwear brand. And like that. thank you. And what that means is vast and dramatic. I mean, let's back up to this all idea about what natural movement is. Stronger is better than weaker. Feeling is better than not feeling. Moving is better than being immobile. Proper alignment is good. If you buy into that, then the question is, can you think of any place, any use case, any activity where that's not appropriate? And if you work really hard, you may go, what about ice skating and skiing and rock climbing? And I go, yep, we can't make shoes for those things. But we have an Olympic ice hockey player who says that she's uh, her feet and ankles are stronger than ever from wearing our shoes off the ice, and she's skating better as a result. We have skiers who say the same thing. We have rock climbers who say the same thing. And you have an MMA fighter who's going to be wearing or, or we have a multiple the world champion. Yeah, multiple world champion, two-time world champion, uh, uh, Bellator MMA, Bantamweight, uh, Rafian Stotts. Yeah. He's got a third world championship fight coming up in just a couple, oh gosh, 12 days. I think the 24th or something like that. Yeah. It's the end of the Some, month. I, I saw yeah, that just somewhere. Yeah. Very and cool. so, and lives in our shoes um, mm. and says same thing. It's like, this is making me a better martial artist, mar- better fighter. That's incredible. Um, golfers, we have five professional golfers who've reached out saying, I love your shoes for training, but I'm sponsored by a big shoe company, so I can't wear them when I compete. And the joke is they're each wearing a different shoe that they mm-hmm. swear by. Wow. Wow. So you've got shoes for running now. So you started out as the idea of running barefoot. That was the whole idea. But now you have hiking boots. Lena hikes. She doesn't run, correct? Correct. correct. And- I'm um, looking in the back in the sandals. So we, yeah, for you, everything. I mean, you name it. it. We have products for almost everything you could think of. Um, I love those blue and yellow ones behind you. Those are really pretty. Which ones? These? Down below. Yeah. Down the other way. Yeah. They're right there. Yeah. Oh, those yeah. Are this, so this is so cute. It's a running shoe that is basically, it's all the entire upper is one piece. It's essentially a sock that mm. you can run in. It's crazy delightful. I love it. So would you have something for somebody like me who lifts weights, goes to the gym, walks on a so treadmill or this is our ooh, this is our Forza trainer and we mm-hmm. made it as a training shoe. And we have a whole bunch of CrossFit athletes who are wearing this. If you're um uh it, you might know some of these names, but if you've been around the fitness world long enough, remember in the strongman competitions, Bill Kazmaier? Mm-hmm. Bill called me to say he got these shoes and changed his life. Or uh, someone people might know now, especially from YouTube, is a guy named, he calls himself Juji Mufu. And uh, Juji just made a video saying, these are the best training shoes he's ever worn. 
Um, we have a number of NBA teams where the trainers are living in these shoes. Now a bunch of the players are starting to wear them as well. So here's the joke though. I need to, I need to order a pair. These things are great. I know a guy who knows a guy. He'll hook you up. Okay. All right. Good. Um, the, the, the thing that's so funny is almost every shoe we make, people use it for things that we never imagined. And so the first shoe we made was a casual canvas shoe. And we hear from someone who said, hey, I just climbed Kilimanjaro on these. Like, wait, what? What? Uh, <laughs> so again, I, when feet do what's natural. Yeah. Where you yeah. go. And I feel that, you know, it was something you said earlier on that um, you, you sort of created this because you believed in it, but you didn't even know you were creating it. Like you just got into it. It was like the person who wrote the book who didn't know yeah. how to write a book. Yeah. You do not yeah. come with, with making a sneaker shoe. You, you, yeah. that's not either one of your backgrounds. No. And there's some design elements that I came up with that no one had ever done before. Some of which we have patents on. And I asked a friend of mine who's been doing footwear design for now 50 years. I said, how come, you know, I thought of these things and no one else did. He goes, cause you don't know anything about footwear. Mm. That's it. Um, it's almost, you know, it's ignorance is bliss, right? It doesn't. It, what happens is the, when you know certain things about certain things, you kind of your thoughts get a little boxed in. It's hard to think out of the box. Right. You have those boundaries. You have those yeah. boundaries. So we have about three minutes left to the show and I have two more questions to ask you. Well, that, One is, you. can you mention the the running book and and your collaboration with yes. Chris McDougall? So Chris McDougall wrote the book Born to Run, which even if you're not run, a runner like my wife, it's an amazing story, both of his experience and the Taramara Indians from Mexico uh, who run in either bare feet or simple sandals and were the, are the best runners in the world. Um, Chris and his running coach and now co-author came up with Born to Run 2, the ultimate training guide. And they reached out and said, do you want to send us some shoes to test to see if we want to put them in the book? So I sent them some things and now they are partners of ours. They said they've never promoted a shoe or a brand ever. And now they are working with us exclusively because of the product, not because we paid them anything, which we didn't. Wow. Can I say mazel tov? Yeah, you just did. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Congratulations. And the next time I need to have you on the show again, so we can talk about more things, but we have to have Lena on the show the next time you come on okay. um, because I definitely have to meet her. But the last question I have for you is what does it mean to be a fearlessly authentic person? Oh boy. Um, I would say to question the things that you think may be true to find out if in fact they are and be willing to um be willing to acknowledge when you had your head up your butt because you believe something that wasn't actually accurate and was not useful for you or the people around you. Probably one of the best answers I've ever gotten with that question. So <laughs> yes, I I love it. I really do. <laughs> Steven Sashin from Zero Shoes, thank you so much. And I, I'm just so happy for all the success that you are having with this company that you built you know, from the love in your heart, you know, and it's just great to see it. And you're also very smart and, you know, had a few lucky breaks, but I mean, I'm not selling that short, but you know, when you do talk about the luck, I think there is some people always say timing and luck. Yeah. It's, it's 90% luck and the other 10% is also luck. Yeah. And a lot of hard work. Oh yeah. That too. That's a separate hundred percent. Yes. Yes. So Stephen, thank you so much for being on Fearlessly Authentic. And where can people find you? Uh, Zero Shoes, X-E-R-O Shoes.com or slash Zero Shoes or at Zero Shoes, wherever you slash or at. And if your computer accidentally types in a Z instead of an X, it'll probably still get to us. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Take care of yourself and I'll talk to you soon. I was right. It was a pleasure.
Yes, yes. Thank you, everybody. And until next week, go have a fearlessly authentic week. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Please listen again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you. 